Who boy, this is a humdinger we got for you today. Uh, on the on the podcast today is a New York Times best-selling author Leslie Jameson. We our conversation starts off ostensibly, uh, or our, our jumping off point was a, a piece she published in the New Yorker recently about uh, choose your own adventure books. And one of the things that she talks about in her piece is the power of regret for past decisions to inform our future and the failure of regret to transform our pasts. And I'm coming to you now, uh, fresh out of the dentist's office, and my my word to you about regret and how regret can transform your future is you should probably brush your teeth more. Oh, fuck. I am... Um, your boy is in for $1,300 worth of, uh, of dental care. I have to get uh, two crowns, two fillings, a hole in a heartbeat. Uh, the, I, I just a mouthful of pain and suffering. Um, God, it sucks. I wish I had brushed more. If I could go back in time, I would kill Hitler as a baby and brush my teeth more. Oh, it sucks. Um, oh, my God. Anyway, the... So much stuff to get through today. Oh, the um, let me feather seamlessly from a discussion about my horrible rotting mouth uh, into the Patreon. If you're listening to the podcast and you enjoy it, um, please sign up. It's patreon.com. I think you can sign up for a buck a month or three bucks a month. Almost nothing. Um, help me fix this uh, train wreck inside of a shipwreck inside of my big dumb mouth so I can keep talking at you um, and eating Twizzlers. Uh, God damn it. The um, All right, let me go through. I'll run through a ton of business um, that we have, and then I'll do a formal header in one smooth take in which I will I'll hit all the notes and it will be perfect. Um, I have a ton of shows coming up. The The podcast will come out after it, but uh, Brandy Posey will be performing at my side yard uh, tonight. These shows are... Oh, the worst one has been awesome. The, the It's just so worthwhile, so much fun, and such a hassle when I'm getting ready for them. But uh, shows I have coming up are... Uh, my friend Derek Sheen is flying out from Seattle. Uh, Derek's put out a ton of records on uh, stand-up records. Um, he's an incredibly gifted storyteller. Uh, November 17th, I'll be at Black Bridge Brewery in Kingman, Arizona. Uh, November 18th, we'll be at my side yard in my house in Phoenix. Uh, November 19th, at Catalina Craft Pizza in Tucson. And all of those are with Derek Sheen. And then November 20th, we'll be at the Quarry in Bisbee, Arizona with Derek Sheen and my sweetheart, your sweetheart, everybody's sweetheart, Christine Levine. Um, that's going to be a killer show. Uh, then I hit the road in earnest November 30th. I'll be at the Comedy Fort in Fort Collins, Colorado with uh, a star-studded cast of thousands. Uh, Kyle Pogue, Haley Raven, Ben Roy, Sam Talent. We might have a couple other people uh, drop in. It, it, that's going to be such a killer show. Um, and then I will be joined by my buddy uh, Rad Pinkard, my uh, adopted stepdaughter, uh, caught in the dryer. Um, he's going to be hanging out, and 
uh, playing on the, on these shows and also helping me look after Sadie, who will be on the road with uh, with us. The I'm imagining it like a the poster for a Disney movie of you know sort of like two uh, the you know ragged world weary loner, the young bright eyed bushy tailed uh, songwriter just starting out, and then the dog to glue them all together. Um, so with Rad, I'll be uh, December first at Backswing Brewery in Omaha, Nebraska. December 2nd at Backswing Brewery in Lincoln, Nebraska. Um, December 3rd at Barrel of the Bottoms in Kansas City, Missouri. December 4th at the Painted Door Series House Show in Lincoln, Nebraska. I think that one may already be sold out. Uh, December 5th, we are off. We'll be hiding out somewhere. Um, Peoria, Des Moines, I don't know. Some place cold and miserable. Uh, December 6th, we'll have a house show with my buddy... uh, Scotty Coomer in Chicago uh, with Tremaine Bradley and Colin Nelson. That's going to be another, man, so many good shows here. Uh, December 7th, we'll be in Indianapolis. Uh, I don't have the venue for that yet. Um, Then I have a week off. And then uh, December 15th, I'll be in Columbus, Ohio uh, with Lou Poster of Driftmouth, who you've heard on the podcast here, and uh, Caitlin Krause, who is also of Driftmouth and has her own band, uh, Caitlin Krause Trio, uh, who I just saw when I was in Ohio. They're fucking great. Um, today's guest, the man, this was a weird one. This, uh, um, I first encountered. I, I had an ex-girlfriend turn me on to Leslie Jameson's writing um, years ago, maybe 2017, 2018. And I was stunned by the length and breadth of her intellect and that and that she wasn't just an, an, an automaton or a computer, that, um, that she was so fucking smart and so smart in so many ways. And uh, there was sort of heart and caring and tenderness uh, stitched through all of it. And it almost, you know, it's, uh, she almost seems to be uh, impossible or unfair. Like as it's a D&D, she's a D&D character with uh, perfect scores of 18 um, in both uh, I don't know, brain and heart. The, yeah, she's uh, she's really a phenomenon. The I, th- there's not enough superlatives there. She is a genius. She's probably you know one of the smartest, if not the smartest, um, person I've ever met. We had a thing for a minute. Um, uh, we cared deeply and intensely and briefly for each other and i behaved uh predictably horrible and uh i think broke both of our hearts in the process and so i think we we've salvaged a friendship out of it the you know the connection that that we have between the two of us it's it's a tremendous connection and and something that you know i'll fight to preserve um but uh but it's tricky um it, you know it's tricky because we're both uh, memoirists and inevitably when you're a memoirist you write about your own life and the that's uh difficult to navigate sometimes so this was uh man i was uh i was nervous and excited and you know sort of on eggshells for a lot of this because we're i think you can sort of hear us talking about talking about 
her brilliant piece on Choose Your Own Adventure books and talking about uh, things from our personal lives together and separate and the, you know, the hardship of COVID, the isolation, cleaning up the feces of another being that you love and um, how awful and infinite that is. Um, You know, this is definitely... I've been thinking a lot as we're approaching the sort of one year mark with the podcast of what am I, what I'm doing here or what this means or why I'm doing it or uh, do I continue it? Um, should I continue it? What point am I trying to make here with this, with this episode, we definitely went a, um, a lot deeper into the, the broken flowers aspect of this journey of, you know, reconnecting with people from my past and, yeah, this was a tricky one for me, but it was, it, but I, I had to do it. I, ha- I had to force myself to do it. And I'm really grateful to Leslie for, um, being here for this, for ha- having this conversation with me because it's, uh, so germane to her writing, to my writing about, uh, hope and imagination and memory and regret and longing and desire. Um, and, and then ultimately, salvaging the best life that you can uh from the life that you have wound up with um i could say more but i'll uh i'll hold my tongue the anyway thanks so much for tuning in the i feel like this is probably the best episode yet uh i hope you dig my conversation with writer leslie jameson Mr. Shabali is catching up with friends who are arguably more talented than him. Of course, I've been overthinking about all the different things that I want to say and ask you about and all that stuff. But the first thing that I and it's all of course, it's all too much. um, But the first thing that I want to say is. Thank you so much for doing this because it feels a little bit like I've sworn to you that I built an airplane behind my house and the, you're like, no way, really? And I'm like, yeah, no, it's, it's really real. And then like we walk around the house and it's like a cardboard airplane and your response is not, this is fucking bullshit. I'm not like, why are you wasting my time with this rinky dink operation? Your response is to go over and open the door and be like, oh wow, they have those little socks for you to put on your feet. This is going to be a great flight. (laughs) Oh, oh my God. Just give me a pair of those socks. And (laughs) I'm totally sold. No, I remember, well, I remember it was like the the best kinds of surprises slash revelations always have like you know multiple stages of like heightened expectations and disappointment rather than just like a one-two punch in one direction or another but like i remember when the first time i saw your date trees at your place and you were like i've got these date trees then there's this immediate like oh my god like do you live in a ancient biblical text like what is this <laughs> and then you were like well they barely have anything at all and then it was like the you know expectations totally annihilated but then there was like a tiny little bit of like dateness around the edges of the date which was like it was but it was like we'd gone on a journey we'd gone a whole journey to get there i don't know what the status of your dates is right now but i appreciate the the disappointment of the cardboard airplane and then the revelation of the you know it, it 
it is. I mean, that's a thing that uh, it, it does seem to be sort of cyclical of the universe is continually expanding and contracting in, um, you know, joy and despair. The um, the dates are doing well. They're coming in every morning when I go out there to run with Sadie. The, she always tries to eat them off the tree now. Great. Why, she's like failing the marshmallow experiment in the best possible way. Everyone, she's like, I will not wait for more. I know. The, I, I think I sent you that clip of her like leaping for her treats. Yeah. And it's the, it's the fucking best thing in my life these days. The, um, I know. I, I love, I feel like I see like, I, in, in the in the small portion of pet clips that I get, I feel like I'm just seeing like the tip of the Mishka iceberg. You know what I mean? It's like I know there's like a whole world behind the doorway, and I and I get these little glimpses of it. But you know, whatever the equivalent of like four thousand eight hundred and sixty-two pictures of my daughter on my iPhone, you know, I know there's there's a, there's a lot of. Um, dog and cat just goodness on your on your iphone i can only imagine we were um we were talking about uh passwords and security and all the double triple authentication all that stuff the i feel like if someone ever got into my iphone they would be disappointed by the reams and volumes of uh virtually the same cat pick or the same dog pick over and over again like repeated every day you know Totally. I know. And how much truth there is in like the distinctions that only we can see where I'm like, oh, no, no. In this photo, my daughter's expression carries like more hope and a little bit of surprise. And this one is like 90 <laughs> percent surprise, like four percent bewilderment. And like, you know, it's like, it's like the, the intricate, unspoken emotional captioning underneath like each variation. There was I, I watched a clip on Reddit the other day, and it was a guy who had taken um, like seconds of video. Uh, I, th- I think every day from like his daughter's birth until she turned twenty, and it you know it, it unfolds over the course of whatever a minute and a half or two minutes or something like that, and it uh, it it almost made me nauseous to watch the because of the um, just the infinite variations that she was. Um, from, from like shot to shot, she was, um, she was, she was the same, she was the same, she was the same. And then all of a sudden she was like markedly different than she had been before, you know, and the, um, I mean, talking about the choose your own adventure thing of to be able to go back and forward in time, Mm -hmm. um, to, to see this young woman at 20, um, encapsulating all of the young women that she had yeah. been before that. Yeah. Um, yeah. and also yeah. for like the last third of the videos, uh, she's uh, sort of like talking and laughing and rolling her eyes as if she, as if for the last seven years, she's just been saying like, dad, you're embarrassing me. Totally. Well, that's what I was imagining was like years 14 through 20 just consist of a lot of like, like, you know, face like her face turned away from the frame in different ways or like footage that's like get away but I love that I mean I love that idea of like the I think it's true the kind of Russian nesting doll model of the self where you can see or somehow understand all these like prior selves just like squatting inside yourself in any given moment or yourself in the present I mean I'm curious like I know I don't I don't can I ask you questions yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, this is okay. just what we just 
we just hang out for an hour <laughs> and the, whatever yeah whatever the uh, that's the, what you didn't realize when you got into the airplane is that you're in the pilot seat so the, where are we going and uh when are they serving the uh the beverages <laughs> totally <It's> like, <laughs> every pilot should be just wearing leisure socks and <sighs> yeah i mean i guess i'm curious like what parts of yourself you feel have emerged either emerged like come to exist or emerged like become apparent to you in becoming like a, an increasingly devoted pet owner like serious question like do you feel like are there parts of yourself because I'm always interested by this question of like I mean as you know we've talked about it before like what are the parts of yourself that you don't yet know and how is life finding ways to expose you to those parts of yourself and I guess I wonder like what were the parts of yourself that you didn't know before you became a pet owner? I mean, you stitched the answer right into the question there when you said, you know, uh, what has become apparent, um, the, <laughs> that like, um, you know, sort of going back and revisiting some of your work, it, um, I think one of the things that, uh, that was sort of uh, terrifying and infuriating and bewildering to me um, when I met you was your obsession with your daughter. And now I fucking get it. <laughs> I finally, I finally get it because the, <laughs> you know, the, I was like, <laughs> I was griping to somebody about uh, cleaning up my dog's shit in the backyard every day. Cause it's not a big backyard. And I feel like, I feel like Sadie, she's a good girl, so I feel like she wants to poop other places. She she shit right in front of the, the police station when we were on our run today. I was like, I was so proud. That, but I feel like she she would prefer to, to shit other places, but that every morning she sees me doing this grim little Easter egg hunt with the poop scooper <laughs> like in the yard where she's like, oh man, I would really rather like poop on the neighbor's uh, lawn. But clearly Mishka's deeply invested in harvesting my feces, you know, so in order to please him, I feel like I need to do this. But I was complaining about this to somebody and they were like, you, can, you know, you can pay somebody and like, they'll just come in and do it. And I was like, no, 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 I, I need to, uh, I need to keep track on what's coming out of her butt to make sure that she's okay, <laughs> you know? And so it's, yeah, it's like a weird curse that I, I just want to tell you, I finally get it. <laughs> it's, and I, and I think it's one of those things where you just, you don't, you don't get it until you get it. Yeah, there's like a, and I think there's a, for me, there's a way that parenting like continues something that was already a familiar part of my personality, which is like kind of vacillating wildly between emotional extremes. Like, I mean, you and I both know something about this, but it's like <laughs> to basically be like, oh my God, you're the most amazing person in the world this work together in this experience of caregiving we're having like the most transcendent and wondrous experience that has ever happened in the entire world and and that's like moment one and then moment two is just like the feeling of claustrophobia I have is like bottomless and I'll never get out of it and like I must flee you tiny creature who depends on me I must flee this entire domestic apparatus I've set up it's just like it's just like it's either the best thing in the world it's like the worst curse in the world like there's a kind of like a kind of extremity of feeling contained that, that I feel like you know is summoned by like 
God, I hate picking up this shit. Like I could never imagine not picking up this shit, you know, just like both of those at once. Um, but the thing that's a little, so I was like, Oh, this vacillation I recognize, but I think something that I like, it's almost like a younger version of myself wanted to exist as like self as highlights real. Like I wanted to consist of my most interesting moments, like my most, the best things I said, the funniest things I said, the smartest things I said, and to just be this sort of curated, just like the top 5% of selfhood and just like slough off all the like B plus material downward or whatever. I'm obviously like a gold star addict. Like <laughs> and all my metaphors are like related to like fourth grade. Um, but I feel like part of what parenting is, is like, right. You don't get to be like the highlights reel of yourself. Like you literally have to be just like every single moment on and on and on like all of it. So it's like, you don't just get to be like the first time you respond to like, you know, a temper tantrum where you're being really like gracious and like, Oh, I'm just like sitting with you in this feeling, you know? And like, you also, you also have to be like the 10th responder and like the 15th responder who's like, Oh my God, like I've been responding to this thing over and over again. I don't have any patience left, but it's like, there's something about that that has been like a particular kind of profundity about parenting where it's like, yeah, I don't get to choose which moments of me are having an impact on this person. Like she's getting all the moments of me. And so I have to sort of understand myself as like, not just like the cherry picked, um, like what you can do when you write or when you write yourself, right. It's like you choose the moments and you create the self that you are on the page, but like parenting is sort of like the opposite form of selfhood where it's just like all there all the time. I remember coming home one day, uh, one, one night and this is when Sadie was like, you know, still pretty a puppy and she had, uh, chewed a, uh, a thing of paper towels, which is, it, it's nothing. It's the easiest thing to clean up. It, it doesn't cost anything. There's no, it's totally replaceable. Um, and when I came in, I saw that she chewed them up. Uh, she was on the couch and I yelled at her. And then because she was so scared, she peed on the couch. And it was, it was one of those, uh, just a multi-layered experience where I was like, this is, this is the fucking hand of God showing you who you are and yeah. how, how you create the disasters in your life. Um, yeah. Sadie will be writing about this moment in her fucking memoir and I will look like a monster <laughs> and, and also just, um, I, as you know, as an alcoholic and an addict, I never experienced the powerlessness that I feel as a, pet owner watching my cat climb into the litter box, turn around three times, then stick her ass out of the litter box. And while standing all four feet in the litter box, shit outside. Yeah. <laughs> it just, it's like, you know, I, I, I kneel before God. I tear my clothes. I scream. I tear my hair out and nothing will make her, nothing will get that turd back in the tray. <laughs> That's amazing. It's almost like a kind of, reverse engineering or like an, a, a kind of like demented LSAT problem where it's like, that is definitely a metaphor for something like having <laughs> all four feet in the litter box and like shitting outside anyway, but we have to figure out what it's a metaphor for. Like we know we've got a metaphor in our hands. We just have to like, you know, yoke it to its, um, 
<laughs> to its illuminated subject somehow. But I, I love that. I mean, I feel like it's part of being a writer. It's like you move through the world and like, it's like your spidey sense goes off where you're like, okay, that's useful. Or like, that means something. But there, but I, but I sometimes definitely experience there's like a little bit of a delay where I'm like, is it a metaphor for like, you know, trying to control everything, but then you fuck up anyway? Is it like a metaphor for feeling like you have everything figured out and squared away, but like the shit's getting all over everything regardless of your best efforts. So I know it's a metaphor for something. And it's certainly, I love that about powerlessness. Like, cause ultimately it's like the powerlessness of addiction is so much a powerlessness. It's like about the self and the self's relationship to a substance. And it's just like a different kind of powerlessness when part of the system exists outside of you and it's like another person which always introduces like this whole realm of things you can't control another person or another creature yeah it's i mean i i i guess the difference between addiction is um you know powerlessness before the void versus in this instance powerlessness before my own love for for my girls you know and the and also that expectation of grief to come Mm -hmm. that if best case scenario i will watch you die you know like i will lose you and the and you know i was running with sadie the other day on the sidewalk and she's very well behaved on the leash but the also sometimes you know she always wants to play with me and fuck with me so she'll like grab the leash in her mouth and sort of tug on it and stuff and like the and she you know looks up at me like you know dad i'm doing it you know uh so proud and the but sometimes she'll sort of like turn sideways and for you know her um her like tail went out into the road and i just had this vision of her hips you know slipping off the thing just as a truck is passing you know and it was like uh you know and thinking about that that projection i'm thinking about your choose your own adventure piece and the the power of regret the impossibility of regret changing the past but the power of regret to shape the future and in projecting my dog's unfortunate death before my eyes i ruined my fucking run (laughs) and i need to i need to just not think about that and i don't know it's it's so weird though because the damn it like having you know having my cat and my dog i've opened myself up to love in ways that i have been unable to previously <laughs> the uh i did uh we did a show here a while ago um <laughs> with with my friend Lou Moon, who you may recall. And uh, he he was like, oh, I gotta, I'll do my Mishka impersonation. It's a very specific thing. I, you know, I can't really, but I'll do it here. And it was like, um, and he just did a real deep voice. And he was like, I love my cat more than I'll ever be able to love an adult human woman. <laughs> and I was like, don't speak truth at a comedy show. Just <laughs> fucking tell jokes, man. <laughs> Oh my god! I thought that's what all comedy shows were. We're just Trojan or good ones, anyway. We're just like Trojan horses of truths that ambush you from inside. Like just when you think you're having a good time, you are hit with some sort of devastating insight. I mean, I think yeah. There's always there's like something bracing, but like with time, 
like really illuminating about other people. Like just like when you get this glimpse of yourself through other people's eyes, I mean, it's always just like unbearable for a start. Like even just like the way a recording of my own voice is unbearable to me. But I just, I can think about certain instances where like there was a time when a student told me that, I mean, this was like a decade into my sobriety, but that a student told me about like a drinking game that my students had come up with where like they were at a party and every time somebody said like a Leslie word, they had to take a shot. And it was just like interiority, like tenderness. <laughs> like, you know, it was basically like a word cloud of myself where like every single word he said, I was like, yep, yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> These are all, you know, but just like seeing like, Oh, to them, I am kind of like this, like, word salad repeating loop of just, like, earnest ideas about, like, the interior landscape of consciousness. But, like, I have to hand it to them. Like, that's pretty accurate. Um, Or, like, an ex once wrote about me. um, I think we talked about this, like, and he noted it wasn't, like, a particularly flattering portrait. But one thing he said was that I preface everything I said by saying... I will say, and then like dot, dot, dot. And then the thing like, and I think he, he took it as like a sign of self-importance, like almost like a little cartoon Camelot or something where there's like a little squire who comes out with a pipe and like, dun, 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 dun. like I will, <laughs> that's amazing. Know, I will say like, which would be so cool if we all had like a little squire who could just like, you know, announce us before we begin to speak. But but I realized, like, he was right. I do say, I will say a lot, um, even, like, you know, 15 years later. But but I think I mean it in an almost opposite way, which is not, like, take note. Like, I'm about to say something really comprehensive and important. And more, like, I don't have the total truth on this. But I will say, like, it's almost like the implicit part of the sentence before I will say is this is just like a stab at things. Yeah. But here's like, here's a thought or something like it. But but I guess it it was also humbling because I was, oh, maybe what I experience as humility actually doesn't come across that way at all. And the deeper truth being like we have these narratives of ourselves and how we present to the world and like what we're getting away with and like what we're disguising and what we're projecting. And then we get these little glimpses from other people and we're like, Oh, we're like not hiding anything. Like all our shit is just out there. Like, you know, like, and also it's coming across slightly differently than we understand. So I kind of love those moments, even if they're (laughs) painful in the happening, right? Like (laughs) you, um, you, you talked about sort of seeing, the highlights reel of your life and the, and I, I totally feel that, you know, I think as writers or particularly as memoirists, we always want to imagine ourselves as being in the middle of like a music montage, mm-hmm. you know, the like training for the big fight or, you know, whatever the fuck it is. <laughs> the, but, um, whenever we do an encounter a montage, it's never us who is selecting the moments for the highlights reel, yeah. you know, it's always somebody else. And the, and I, you know, I, we want to rail against it and be like, I was having a bad day or like that was, you know, that was a, that was a bad haircut. That's not how I actually look or mm-hmm. what, or that's a, that was a weird camera angle or, you know, what I, you know, what I said was taken out of context, but the, um, I don't know the t- talk more, I guess, about this experience of encountering 
uh, caricature of yourself in the wild. I mean, for for me, the the my drinking game. A friend of mine said, um, "Yeah, when I was reading your book, and whenever you cry in the book, I had to take a shot." So I like that yours is um, the Leslie Jameson uh, drink drinking as, as at least more articulate and empathetic and thoughtful. And I'm just a fucking howl of pain. But um, the I don't know. Have you have you had that? It, it, I mean, as somebody who lives in public, that whenever people express interest in my personal, you know, my my private life or my personal life, I'm like, man, what the fuck is wrong with you guys? But also, I'm in the Mishka Shabali business. I mean, that's that is what I do. And if anybody knows who I am, it's because I've been like clamoring and waving my hand and sort of like <laughs> tap dancing. Here I am. Look at me. You know, the but then um, I don't know. We get uh, we feel so slighted when somebody else writes about us and get, and we, we perceive that they got it wrong. You know, the, I was going to say, I will say at the opening of the podcast, but I opted for the cardboard paper, you know, the airplane instead. Um, yeah. I mean, I think it's like, there are so many, I mean, when you, when you said that, I love hearing about the drinking game with um, crying. Cause also just like on a craft level, I think it's so hard to write crying well, like um, just like a dramatically, you know, to write it so that it feels, I don't know, singular and distinct, um, dramatically interesting. Like, I mean, I remember when I was writing my book about, you know, drinking, drinking mainly white wine. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it was like I kept trying to figure out just like new ways to write the experience of being drunk so that it wasn't just like the same because it, it so so much of what addiction is right is like the same experience over and over and over again and when you write about that you both want to honor that or express that truth in some way that there is this kind of like maddening repetition and that's just like part of what the thing part of the nature of the beast but to make it into art or whatever you want to call it that doesn't make you throw up in your mouth it's like it's it's not like you don't just want to like completely reproduce the experience repetition so it's somehow like what does artful repetition look like it for me part of it was like trying to find different language for drunkenness or like capture something slightly different about it each time but I was um, thinking about like what it might look like to try to do that for crying like how is the, how how are like how is this crying different from this crying I love there are some like classic crying text that I think about too. Do you know that Kim Adonisio poem to the woman crying uncontrollably in the next stall? Oh yes. I love it. I, you were the first person to share that with me. And then now I see it everywhere. I know. And it's so uh, good. it, it breaks my heart. The it's, you know, it was one of those poems where, you know, now that I I've seen it sort of 10 times in the wild, I'm tempted to try to um, diminish it, but, you know, it's like uh, cliches, you know, there is no place like home, you know, and that's why that's disaggregated so widely. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think that that's the same, you know, with that poem, the, you know, I, I'm, I'm very critical of my own stuff. So it, when I imagine all these different scenes of crying, I'm imagining that it's sort of like, um, the way a hack writer always has to change up the, uh, he said, she said tag, like, you know, he exclaimed, you know, <laughs> like the, 
<laughs> just ha- yeah. he wept he wailed you know the like oh yeah. I, I hope the i god i would hate to see a word cloud of that book well that's i i was actually i was thinking i've i've been doing some work in my current manuscript which you have read um like with word repetition because i i'm i'm really interested by this question of like what are the words like I believe that every book has its particular set of overused words and that those overused words are basically the keys to the kingdom. It's kind of like a summary of like, what is this book about? And like in this book, the overused words included ghost, curdle or variations thereof, accusation, strange, like, but basically it's just like, yeah, it's a book. Oh, like wonder, like sparkle, like, like it was like, there was like a set of words that it was very much like, yes, this is a book about divorce. And then another set of words that was like, yes, this is a book about mothering, you know, but it was like, I think there's something both. So there's something definitely like humbling and embarrassing about overused words, but there's also a kind of, yeah, I'm going to fucking own it. Like this book is about being haunted by some ghosts and it is about like what it feels like for love to curdle. And it is about wonder, you know, but like, so in a way it's like, okay, that map feels accurate, but also like it feels like this really useful gauntlet that the manuscript is like throwing me down, down every time it like takes me back to an overused word where it's like, when you say strange here, like, what do you actually fucking mean? Like what was strange about getting married in Las Vegas after five months at midnight? Like, can you, can you say a little more than strange? You know what I mean? Like it, it also feels like, a kind of writing teacher is like rising out of the computer screen and just like shaking you by the shirt and being like, what are you really trying to say? You know, like one of the things that I found from doing this podcast for almost a year now is that uh, weird, funny, and interesting are three words that come up constantly in conversation. You yeah. say, you say interesting a lot, but yeah. that's, um, that's truth in advertising. You are interested in everything. I I say, you know, it's funny because I I am always trying to look to sort of turn everything into a joke or see the humor and things, you know, particularly unfunny things. And I think weird is so um ubiquitous because it's so useful. Everything is weird. <laughs> you know, and um David Gates has a he's describing the process of falling asleep which, man, what a fucking brave and foolish person you are to try and attempt to write that yeah. down. And he's and he said yeah, the way something now. about the way you know that you're falling asleep is that you have a weird thought. Mm. And for six weeks after that, he ruined my sleep because I would be falling asleep and I would be like, you know, one of those things of uh, I have to drive to the store, so I'll get in the cucumber. And then wait, wait, that's that's the weird thought I'm falling asleep. And then I would stop, you know, but, but to, to nail it that succinctly, um, have you ever written, wait, you just did a crazy gesture. Go for it. (laughs) I know. No, it's just cause I already have like 16 things to say. And even though I I I like, I don't want to lose them. First of all, it's so, I will say it's so, (laughs) it's, I want my students actually, used a word to describe that I will have to look it up so that it's not just me being like, there's a word for it, not having an idea, but that, that weird murky zone 
as you're falling asleep, it's called like the xylematic or something like that. It has like a term. And so one of my students was like, I really like to try to write from that space. Like they basically get into that zone where they're coming up with these like strange quasi hallucinogenic. Like it's like they, it's like some of the dream logic comes to you while you're still partway awake and you feel your mind sort of shimmering and getting like funhouse mirror. And I really, I had never consciously thought about the fact that that there is that strange zone, but it's, it's, it's the same thing, like the weird thoughts that come. And then once I became conscious of it, I was like, Oh, it's so like, it's, it's such a, I don't know. It's kind of an exciting thing that like every single night are my, I mean, dreams themselves I find incredibly exciting, but like every single night we go to this liminal zone, it's almost like a vestibule or like a doorway. I just wrote down liminal space. um, Cause I, I write so many songs that way where I'm like Mm -hmm. falling asleep and then I'm like, Oh fuck, I got to get up and write this down. Mm -hmm. Um, Or I wake up in the morning and I have the chorus of a song in my head or something like that. Um, but it is the, I mean, God damn it. I thought doing this podcast, we would sort of like be able to cross off some of the zillion things we have to talk about, but we we're just making more, <laughs> the, um, you know, one of the things about that liminal space transitioning from, uh, being a sort of like logical, upright thinking, talking human being to, basically putting your body on a shelf and then hallucinating and fast forward for eight hours Yeah, is that there's, um, you know, this, um, and this sort of relates to the choose your own adventure stuff, um, and, and regret and time travel. And, um, is that it's when we enter that liminal zone, we're being open to transformation or seeking sort of some transformation. And the, when we get it, it's never the one that we want you know, that you can, you can wish for transformation and get your wish, but you'll just get uh, a very broad based, uh, okay, here's transformation, but you never, it never turns out the way you want it to be. Um, yeah. Uh, which is sort of, but, I mean, it's part of the nature of transformation itself. I think is that we can, it's like we, we, we have some control over the process because we can do things that make it, we can do things that create the conditions for transformation to be possible in our lives or in ourselves, but we actually don't, it's, it is more like you open yourself to up to transformation rather than getting to like choose from a menu item, what exactly you'll become. And I think that's part of, I mean, yeah, I mean, part of what I, part of what I think I find like so humbling about the fact that dreams are like this really ordinary part. They're so ordinary. Like they happen to everyone, even if you don't remember them, like they are daily. Like, it's just that it's like every day you're being given this lesson that like your life holds more than you understand and like more than you consciously seek or decide. And it's like, every, it's like every day, like darkness falls and like the universe reeducates you in this truth that like you're sort of surrendering yourself to experience, but you don't know what it's going to mean. And, and I have to say like my daughter's bedtime has actually been totally fucked of late, which means I've been thinking so much about just how powerful it is that every day we basically die a little bit. You know what I mean? That, to, that sleep is, 
it's like it's just, it's this really regular thing that you would just like lie down and go to sleep but actually when you stop to think about it it's terrifying and it's and it's weird and it's you know and, but just sitting sitting in a dark room with my daughter as she falls asleep I'm kind of like reacquainted it's like it becomes strange and ominous and it's not even like she's that scared of it she just she's illuminating to me what's always true which is that it's a big transition like whatever she's inside of she's fully inside of it so she's doing one kind of imaginary play like yesterday she was doing like ghost after school you know what I mean it was like all these ghosts going to after school and she was like fully inside of like ghost after school this is what the ghosts are doing after school like they're getting to fight it after school like now they're taking a nap at after school and I was like we gotta like start getting ready for bed and she didn't want to transition out of ghost after school because she was fully in it but then like the second she transitioned out she was then she was like immediately in this other thing where she was like, this is the sun and they all have their offices in the sun. Like I basically all I need to do is just like write down the shit she says and it'll be like my next five books or whatever. But it's like for her, it's like she's so inside conscious life that she doesn't want to transition to the next thing. But probably when she's dreaming, she's like, you know, in an office in the middle of the fucking sun, like, I don't know, doing something intense and fully involved up there. Um, but just that idea of like, I don't know how, how much is required even of like going from these parts of our lives that demand like total agency, total willpower, like total vigilance and choice making all the time to then these other parts of life, whether it's like sleep or other people's needs or, you know, the fucking daily grind of like doing your errands in addition to doing your art that just involve more like surrendering all those parts of ourselves, all the like muscles that we train so hard to like do, 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 or work, 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 or exert will, exert will, exert will. Um, I don't know. I think sleep is fascinating to me because it somehow gets at that like um, necessary surrender and how just um, fucking wild it is. I... I feel like every time I wake up from sleep, I'm sort of like that, uh, the, the narrator in Memento, um, who's sort of forgetting everything. And he's always like, where was I? You know, the, just sort of <laughs> yeah. like you know, waking up abruptly and traumatically. And the, the way my dog wakes up is as if um, her spirit had left her body and that there's like a great sort of wheel of being where, you know, you spin the wheel to find out if you're going to wake up a jellyfish or a senator or, you know, whatever. And it's like every morning she watches the wheel go like tick over to like dog. And she's like, yeah. jackpot, like a dog again. Um, and my, uh, my friend Carl's son, he told me once about him. We were at uh, like breakfast one day and his like two or three year old son just fell asleep right on my side and it was fucking adorable. And the, um, and once, uh, his son Dylan, you know, woke up, uh, and just said, um, all done <laughs> as if he had completed his night's work of yeah. the, you know, going through the, the dream job list of, yeah. you know, drive the cucumber to the store, yeah. like done, uh, you know, uh, uh, clean up the office on the sun or, you know, the, get the ghosts of the after school program that he had, he had completed all that work. And then he was like, okay, time to wake up, you know? Yeah. I think there's some, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me actually if like work was a big part of 
dream life, even though, or, or definitely there are all these ways that, like accountability shows up in dreams. Like for me, it's often like something terrible, like, oh, I've like killed somebody and I'll never be able to undo it. But like, that's like its own version of accountability or like there's something hatching under my skin and there's like no way I can get it out. Like there are these things that you're like stuck with, you know, but I remember my stepfather who passed away earlier this year, like had Alzheimer's for six years. And it was like a really moving part of um, his dementia to me was that he really retained for a long time, like a sense of having things he needed to do, even when he no longer had to do them, you know? So he would really want to do like, he would say things like, well, there's just a couple of, a a couple of like jobs I really have to do. So I need somebody to drive me to like here and to here. And it wasn't necessarily attached to reality anymore, but I realized it was just like part of the architecture of his being, probably part of the architecture of all of our beings, even the things that we like hate, like, oh, I hate picking up my dog shit, but I never want to stop, you know, like that it's like, there's a thing to like arrange yourself around and just like, I need to do these, I need to get the cucumber to the store. Um, and that kind of like, I'm always like, where is it? Sorry. And I have like, I don't know where it is right now, but my daily to-do list or like my, I have like a weird sort of spiritual relationship to them. I, I have a pile <laughs> of them right here. Yeah. <laughs> like three of them going at once. Totally. I know. It's like, it's somehow like, it's like, I can't, I can't, I don't know when you do most of your creative work, whether it's like writing or songwriting or um, coming up with sketch material, like what your kind of like generative zones are, but it's like, I'm usually better working in the morning, but it's like before I can even release myself, to do creative work, I have to put down all the things on my to-do list or else they're like in my, it's like banishing them to my to-do list so that my head can be free for like three hours. That's probably why I put it somewhere else. Cause like once I made it, I like don't want to look at it anymore. I want to give myself a couple hours where I'm not looking at it, but, um, okay. But yeah. This is actually perfect. I, I was, I was thinking about you the other day and like sort of rereading some of your pieces and the thinking about your mind, thinking about your intellect. And in, there's a St- Stephen King story, I think it's called night shift or graveyard shift where the, he's working in a laundry and there's a machine that they call the mangler, you know, and it, it sort of like draws all this, the laundry in and like squeezes the moisture out of it. The, and I was thinking about your, your sort of your heart, your intellect, that it's, um, it struck me as that it's continually sorting. Um, and if I have more than one thing happening in my life at the same time, I'm like, Oh, all this is chaos. Like I can't fucking do it. And I've always marveled at your capacity, both emotionally and intellectually to always be sorting, uh, the needs of your child, the needs of your students, the needs of your fans, the, the, the needs of your readership, um, to, to hold so many things in your head at once. Um, the new book, uh, Splinters, on your Twitter timeline, you said, I wrote this book in blood and breast milk. Is that what you set out to do? Or is that what, like, that after the book was, it's terrifying to look at the manuscript and to read that. I'm like, oh my fucking God, this is like the, um, is that some? Is that what you set out to do? Or is that you reflecting on what had happened? I think more of the latter. It's interesting. One of the 
responses was like, that seems hard to like reproduce at scale. Um, which, immediately, <laughs> which immediately made me imagine like a, a fucked up, like Gothic first edition that was like, literally yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, very Cormac McCarthy. The... <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, yeah, I mean, I think what, what I set out to do was, write a book about uh, early motherhood in the midst of basically a family unraveling, like in the midst of divorce. Um, And to me, that was always like about, it was, it was less about writing about why my marriage didn't work or anything like that, which the book maybe has even gone further away from than the draft you read. Like, and it was very much about like, being in this position of like when when you're not living the life you thought you would lead or or inhabiting the family you thought you would inhabit what does it look like to love fiercely to seek beauty to try to create a life for your child um my editor called it like a book about love in a cauldron like where there's like all this pain and uncertainty and like, what does it look like to kind of like love from inside those spaces? So I think, I mean, I guess in a way, maybe I did set out to write it with blood and breast milk. I mean, cause blood and breast milk are summoning both parts of that, like loving your child and the kind of feeling of like bleeding all over the place as your life is coming apart. And it was really always like that simultaneity of like intense love, intense caregiving, intense kind of grief and pain that was at the core of the book to me, but it's also really about like kind of this, like, you know, to do list energy that you're talking about in terms of like multiple selves living inside the same person at the same time, another version of like the Russian nesting doll theory of self, right? Like, cause it's also a book about like being a mother, being an artist, like, being a wife or a lover or whatever, like how do all those like versions of the self kind of like coexist in their symbiosis and their weird, like crowded strangers in an elevator moments too, you know, where it's like, how do all these selves like kind of fit inside the container of this person? Um, I think was one of the questions that was really interesting to me when I was writing it too. Does it seem right to you? Blood and breast milk. I mean, you've read it. Were you like, yeah, it's the book I read. Um, I think so. Yeah. I think if that was, if you had sent me the manuscript and said, and introduced it to me that way, (laughs) I think I would have like run screaming for the Hills, but I do think that it's, um, it's, you know, it's, it's accurate in that, um, you know, it is about caretaking in the aftermath of a tremendous wound, you know, the, and, uh, you know, sort of about how we, how we heal, how we become defensive, how the scar tissue arises. And then we sort of, that we have to break down the same scar tissue that protected us in order to move forward as human beings and to like, to, to, to be able to care about other people, to learn, to love again, to connect, um, all that stuff, uh, that I hate and fear, uh, the, uh, it. I do like the ferocity of that description, you know, um, when I got the, my elephant tattoo, you know, I told, um, 
the guy who was doing the illustration that I wanted it to be um, like the eyes of a mother protecting her child mm. because that is the most ferocious animal you will ever encounter is a mother protecting her young. Um, and, you know, I definitely got some of that from from the description that it's... It, it it is it, it is m- much more tender and much more vulnerable and much more open i think than that too mm-hmm. because uh you know this thing of sort of to, to as memoirists we're perpetually answering that question of who am i or who do i see myself to be um the and you know i think there's a lot of interrogation there and i think too to be a um to be a young single mother, you're, um, it's a long job list, right? There are so many selves that you need to be the, um, as an artist, you need to be selfish and you need to produce, um, as a mother, you need to be, you know, psychotically focused on the, the well-being of your offspring. Did they eat today? Did they drink today? Did they poop today? You know, that just that sort of that cyclical, the biologic, stuff um as as a young woman you're asking yourself that question of uh will i love again will i be able to love again uh will i die alone you know the um and and you know particularly too the you know to be a um you know a divorced mother with a young child um to have this conception that um as as a woman i'm i'm useless now you know, the I'm broken or bruised fruit or either, we have so many sort of poetic ways of saying like this woman's no good anymore. <laughs> you know, the so I don't know. It's uh, it's dense. It's, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, there's like a million. It's like, I feel I feel like I'm I'm in I'm in one of the like crucial choice junctures that the choose your own adventure of this conversation where it's like, oh my god, there's so many different um roads to go down. But yeah, I mean I, I, I like that I like what you said about memoir writing about the self that you're always kind of figuring out some new way into that question, like who am I or like who am I plural or something like that. And I've been thinking about um Maybe I should, I'm teaching a lecture class for the first time this spring and I've never taught a lecture class before. I'll, I'll, I'll start each session by just being like, I will say, and then we'll go go from there. But, um, I think it's just going to be called the self and it's going to be all about writing the self as a character because there's so much to fucking say. And I actually think like that question gets at all of these interesting parts of being alive too. Just like, who do you understand yourself to be? But, but so much of it, I think really for me comes back to different kinds of simultaneity. Like how are all these versions of the self, like living in the self at once. And also just like, how are you everything all at once? Like you're virtuous, but you're also unwittingly cruel. Like you're selfish and, What's the opposite of selfish? <laughs> giving, uh, caregiving, uh, self- gener- self- generous, self- altruistic, <laughs> yeah. benevolent. I don't know. The- Maybe I'm not though. I was like, what's the what's the other thing one can be besides selfish? Um, <laughs> oh, but- you absolutely are. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> but I just, I love. It's, I just, I really. It's like people come alive for me, whether it's like a person I know or somebody I'm reading. 
Like that's when I feel like that shivery sense of like, I'm in the presence of the truth when like somebody is a lot of different ways at once on the page. So I think we're going to talk a lot about that. Just like how, how can we write ourselves with like a lot of different ways at once? And it's really hard work and it's not therapy, but it's not, not therapy. You know what I mean? It's like, it's pretty fucking close. Like you have to do a lot of thinking pretty hard about yeah, who you are, what you've done, like how you kind of revisit like stories you've told yourself about yourself. My friend Chloe Cooper Jones, who wrote this amazing book um, that came out earlier this year that I would recommend to you and everyone called Easy Beauty, which is about a lot of things. It's about um, being a mom. It's about feeling claustrophobic and domesticity. It's about living with disability. Um, it's about seeking beauty. It's, but, um, she said like this thing, she came to speak to my class and she said this thing that kind of blew my mind, like where she was like, I, on every single page of that book is like a moment where I was wrong or I somehow changed my mind. And like, it was like, it was this, it was like a simple thing, but it helped me understand why even though the memoir doesn't have like a traditional plot structure, I felt riveted throughout. And I think it's because there's something really energizing about seeing somebody adjust their own like vision of themselves or the world. Like there's something about that moment of like adjustment or correction or like, no, it's not actually like that. It's like this, that feels very exciting. Like you're getting lit in on a secret somehow or, or discovering a secret with, with your narrator companion. I, uh, I watched all the jackass movies recently because, because I do a lot of things that I can't explain or justify. Um, (laughs) but the, one of the interesting parts was, you know, where they were sort of trying to trigger trying to figure out exactly where, you know, different members of the jackass cast had gotten PTSD, like which prank finally put them over the edge. (laughs) And one guy was talking about this experience of them, going to this dark room where, um, and they were in there for like 20 minutes and it, you know, it was, you know, it was like sort of him and a couple other like victims. And then there was, um, the perpetrators who had night vision goggles in the darkness and cattle prods. So the, they're just sort of flailing around in the darkness and you can see them through the night vision goggles, the, and that's, um, and it's a, a little, it was a little bit like that, like reading, uh, splinters because, the the narrator has no idea where they are and we're watching them in distress sort of flailing around and we're like no don't go there we like we know exactly where you are you know And, and it's a bit like you know a bit like watching a horror movie too you know the to see i don't know it was i mean it was it was it was interesting. It was funny. It was weird. It was all the things for me at the same time, but the, it was illuminating. I'll say that too, because, uh, I remember playing a friend of mine in New York, my friend Timo, who was on the podcast, I played him a bunch of my demos and he just sort of like listened to them one after one without saying anything. And then he looked at me and he said, I feel like you were profoundly lonely when you were writing these. Mm. And if nothing happens with those songs, just to get that response from him, for him to be able to recognize that, like how far down the well I was at that moment. And the, I don't know, as writers, as memoir, you know, memoirists, we're the, we're always the person in the, in the montage, right? The, we're always the, the star, the, we're always, um, 
oh, fuck, I'm spacing on his name. We're always Ioni Sky and the who's the Lloyd Dobler. No. The, yeah, yeah. From uh, say anything. The and uh, we're we're always the star. And then to uh, to experience the book of uh, someone you know, somebody you care about, somebody in your life, and then to watch them be the star of that montage, um, you're like, oh, fuck, the, the good news and the bad news is that we're not all alone in this world, that mm-hmm. everybody is thinking and feeling um, with the same magnitude that I am. And and we're all sort of lost in our own different ways, and we go in and out of being lost, but it, you know, it, it expands and contracts, you know, it's always cyclical. Yeah. So much to say. First of all, <laughs> you know, my daughter's name is Ioni, and I recently had to make a name name poster with her where we had to illustrate some of where her name had come from. So there is, in fact, a big picture on that poster of Ioni Sky and John Cusack from Say Anything in their love, which is part of her origin story for sure. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think that idea of like, becoming like as you know I'm obsessed with this quote from I think like a really I think he might be like a terrible person but I don't really want to know more (laughs) about it because I like this quote so much but this guy G.K. Chesterton um who who taught who's the quote is something like you know um how much larger my life would be if I could be that much smaller in it, like just one man on a street of splendid strangers and that idea of like moving through the world understanding oneself is like you know just one figure on this like street of splendid strangers is like you know i'm sure that somewhere in the world my students are taking a shot as they're like oh let's <laughs> talking about like the infinitude of every stranger you see on the subway again like heard this one before but like i really am moved i think it's one of the things that's awesome about living in a city especially new york city like it's like you really, you're surrounded by all these people. And if you, it's so easy to just be like, oh my God, these, you know, infinite strangers on the G train are just like in my way. But it's also true that each one of them is like full of sadness and hope and loneliness and all these experiences and stories that you'll never know. And like, sometimes, I mean, it literally feels like being 19 and getting stoned and being like, do you know that everybody has so many memories, you know, but sometimes it just is, it's mind blowing that everybody you're around all the time just has so much inside of them and you're never going to know most of it, but you can kind of like know that it's there. I really want it to be like a genuinely profound idea, even though every time I try to say some version of it out loud, it just really does sound like, Stone, like, I never stoner even logic. Weed that much. I never even liked weed that much when I smoked it. it like, <laughs> but it's like I, I somehow keep transporting my brain back to that like very stoned insight. Um, I mean, it's true. Then, it's yeah. it's the but the thing is, like for me, it's uh, it's exhausting and horrifying. And I feel like for you, it's it's energizing. It can be. It can, it can be. I mean, and I think sometimes it can also just be humbling like you know in that sense of like we all go through the world as like the star of the montage like there's an idea that I'm thinking about a little bit in splinters where partially because at one point I date this guy who like says like he thinks of himself as like a kind of a rom-com villain because he understands that like in the rom-com he would totally be the guy that you were like 
didn't want the girl to go. He like worked for a hedge fund and stuff. And like, I, I was like, I think I was drawn to that, that moment in my life because I was like, I might not be the star of the film. Like not in it, like not even in just a, there are so many other people and everybody is like living their own life and every life is just an important, but kind of like, I always understood myself as somebody you might root for. And I still do, but like, you know, in the context of my divorce, I was also like, had to see myself as somebody who had like caused a lot of pain to another person. And like, in the case of my ex, like caused a lot of pain to somebody who had like already suffered tremendously and like gone through a pretty terrible tragedy. And like, just that idea of like, I actually don't know, am I like the plucky heroine or am I like a character in the movie where you're like, fuck, I hope she dies. You know, like, and it's not <laughs> like I, it's, I don't need to be melodramatic about it. Like, it's not like, oh, it's so, so t- like I'm some great villainess or something like that. But I, I just think there was something about that instability of being like, yeah, I don't know. I might not be a heroine. I'm just sort of like a person, you know, and that, that, that something about that felt like has felt a bit like a readjustment of my thirties maybe. Um, cause I think in my twenties I would, I would be too smart and self-aware to ever say something like, I think I'm like the star of the movie, but like, I totally did think I was the star of the movie. And I think now I'm like, not so sure, you know? Well, I mean, I, I think you're the heroine, the, but you do touch on something there that, you know, I think is, you know, sort of one of those like Zen cones of human existence, you know, which is, you know, um, one, you know, understand that, that, um, you know, don't hurt anyone. And number two, you will hurt everyone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, th- that is the price of admission for being a human being is, um, knowing that it's wrong to hurt people and knowing that as you move through your life, you know, you, um, casually, cruelly, thoughtlessly, or with the best of intentions that you will be, um, you'll be hurting so many people, mm-hmm. you know, the, mm-hmm. um, Sadie, when I come home now, the, she does this thing where she sort of like wags her tail where it curls her whole body, like, you know, um, C shaped, you know, one way or the next, and she turns her head sort of sideways and like pulls a lip back. Like she's, um, she's smiling at me or it's like a little bit of it, like Elvis snarl. But the, but I wonder, is that, because she loves me or is that because she fears me because one too many times when I came home, when there Mm -hmm. was, you know, when she had eaten the paper towels, I yelled at her, you know, Mm -hmm. the, um, I don't know. It's so, I mean, it's like, right. We're both like, so kind of relentlessly self-critical. It's like, I remember I used to have this when my daughter was a little bit younger, when she was still a toddler, she would, um, whenever she would cry, part of how I would comfort her is I would pick her up and I would sing, um, don't cry for me, Argentina. (laughs) Usually it would usually work. Right. But it was like, my psyche was so incapable of just leaving it at that, you know, just being like, you have developed a, a capable way of comforting your daughter that I became convinced that I actually had such a bad singing voice that the reason she would stop crying was because she knew that that was like what was going to make me stop singing, you know? And I remember telling that to my friend Mary and she was like, that's fucking dark. Like we fucking twisted that shit around like so quick, you know, it's just like, how can I make this 
heartwarming tableau <laughs> actually another kind of like cudgel of like self-deprecation you know the endless work yeah the the alcoholic mind like we can fucking turn anything into yeah. you know darkness and pain and shame and uh yeah <laughs> um let's talk about choose so tell me about i mean i don't know i mean we've uh, well, just talk to me about Choose Your Own Adventures. Like, what do you remember when you remember reading Choose Your Own Adventures? It's so funny because the the your Choose Your Own Adventure piece was our jumping off point for this podcast, and we haven't talked about it at all. Um, the, I mean, it's we've kind of been talking about it the whole time. In a way. I know. I know. Year, yeah. <laughs> the it's so. It, I mean, I remember talking to you about Ultima and the you know the the entire premise of us ufo 5440 the that the only way you could get to your destination was um uh or the, that there was no road to your destination that you got there or you didn't get there and I, I remember like flipping through the book and being like what the fuck you know and the but it, it's one of those things where it's it was so interesting for me to read that piece and to see all the ways in which that piece speaks to your other writing and your body of work. Um, but also how that, that as a child reading it, that you would delight in, uh, in dying in the narrative where I was always like, man, fuck you. This is rigged, you know, and <laughs> that I was, um, I was furious that, you know, my sense of, I had a, like a searing, um, you know, sense of injustice, that um that you you could never get to ultima that i could that we had been giving given this power of it's sort of like uh les jeux sans fait you know that that you can go back and redo your life and relive your life you're there you're given that power and when you're given that power you just make the same fucking mistakes over and over again Mm -hmm. you know um and that you know there is no way to get to ultima but i don't know the but like but but then but then there is, right? Which is like, you just have to cheat, you know? Um, <laughs> <laughs> which is what I always loved. I mean, you know, to some extent, it's just like, you know, um, uh, one of us can play like Perky Polly and the other one can play like Pessimist Polly or something. But it's like, I feel like I did, I think part of what I liked about Ultimum I mean, I wrote about this some in the piece was that it felt like not only did it feel exciting to me that like the only way to get to the paradise planet was just by like flipping through and finding the ending rather than following choices, but that like embedded in that formal disruption or that breaking of the rules, it felt like I was being seen, you know what I mean? Because I always cheated. And so Mm. it felt like it was seeing in rewarding this particular strategy that I did, it felt like, cause there's a great gift in like something, another person, a text, uh, I guess for people who really have an intense relationship with God, like a feeling of God doing this, like to just to feel like you are seen in the flawed thing. And like that, that is somehow the part of you that's being loved. You know, that you're not like being loved despite that, flawed part or like because you've managed to keep that flawed part successfully hidden which is like one of the great ways I feel like that we we collectively like find ourselves in kind in like compromised kinds of love it's like if, if I can just like keep these parts of myself hidden away enough then I'll be the person who's like worthy of love 
But then like the terrible trap of that is that like when you get love under those like sort of partial self-secreting terms, like it doesn't actually feel like love because the whole time you're just sitting there thinking like, but if they really knew, like they wouldn't love me. And that, so actually it feels good to be loved like warts and all or whatever. But it's like, I think somehow all of that was like weirdly at stake for me in Ultima because it was like, I felt like the book was like, yeah, you cheated and that's okay. And not only is that okay, it's in fact like the only way you can get to paradise. So I'm glad you cheated. Like, I'm glad you're a cheater. Like you deserve good things, you cheater. You know, like it was, I don't know. (laughs) There was something like, I I really felt like it was like, I was felt very embraced by the book. Like (laughs) it's, it's interesting to me because in sort of the parlance of our times to to say, oh, I feel so seen or I feel heard that that's, um, that that's always a, you know, a good thing. And <laughs> the, and I, I, you know, I'll be honest here and like, that's one of the, um, that's been probably the best and worst part of knowing you is that I do feel seen and it's terrifying, you know, the two, and I think that's one of the things that people complain about, you know, so much in our, you know, relationships, whether it be, you know, work or romantic or whatever the, you know, that, oh, you know, they don't understand me. And the, it's sort of like a weird, you know, black mirror thing of, you know, we think having somebody not understand us is the nightmare, but the actual nightmare is mm-hmm. um, meeting somebody who, uh, who knows you inside and out when you've spent most of your life. I don't know, living in secret or, or having all these multiple lives, having all these different variants of the Russian dolls that you've, that you've hidden away, that you've, you know, secreted away. And then all, all of a sudden somebody sees them and it's, I don't know, you feel caught or something, you know, I guess that's my, my version of, of feeling seen whenever I'm, whenever I'm, whenever I feel seen, it's when I'm fucking shoplifting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. And I think it's like, it's, and again, it's like another form of simultaneity, right? Like sometimes the things that we most want, like hurt intensely when we get them or like just the way that in a, it, like being seen, like, like, like anything just like feels a lot of different ways at once. And in general, I'm, I find myself suspicious of statements or people who have sort of like unequivocal relationships to thing or where it's like all feels one way or something like that. I'm like, but it, but nothing ever feels all one way or like, I'm also, I think this gets to like what we were talking about earlier about like, um, keywords or like finding things interesting or weird or like what it, what it tells you about a person, like what word they use all the time. Like I remember once dating somebody who's actually like a really lovely human being, but he his, he had a whole thing that was like that he was never really surprised by stuff like he was like yeah i'm just like not surprised that often and i i i've been thinking a lot about this in the i mean we dated in college so it's been several decades now and i'm like i actually resist this way of being in the world i resist yeah i resist the state of not being frequently surprised i don't like it. i don't, i'm suspicious of it like cuz it's like i actually think if you're paying attention there's a lot to be surprised by, you know? And I think if you're kind of, I don't know, it's like, it's suggestive to me of like, a. first of all, I just think it seems like a less interesting way of being alive, right? Like if everything was kind of how you thought it would be, like, isn't that dull? And 
it gets to the thing about dreaming too. Like, well, you must be surprised by your dreams. Like you couldn't have been expecting to pick up your groceries in a cucumber or could you, you know, like, and so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm just like a big fan of surprise. I think as like a, um, a, a feature of life and like a sign that like you're kind of being real with yourself about your experience of the world when you're kind of like copping to being surprised. Um, I know you need to go in a minute because you said you have another call. Yeah. The one, one last, one final question, which I think we've been saying for years now. The um, one of the things that for me was so poignant about the Ultima piece is you know where you're talking about the um, the author or the creator, and you know sort of later in life, a man, whatever, in his. 40s and his 50s, um, having had two divorces, that he's going back and writing these Choose Your Own Adventures book with us. For us to see it now as adults, when we were sort of fiends for these books as children, to now see it with sort of a broken flowers um, aspect that, you know, it was a way for him of, in some ways, revisiting the mistakes that he's he'd made in his life um, to to give the narrator another, another option, or, Mm -hmm. you know, if you, if you choose a different way, go this way, the, I don't know how, what do we take away from that? How do we carry that forward that, you know, the getting a do over? Yeah. I mean, I think, um, yeah, I mean, there was so much that I loved about learning more about like the, the history of how those books got written and, I was really interested by the fact that like the two main authors of those books, Ed Packard and Ari Montgomery both had um, both went through divorces, like just kind of as they were really helping to launch the series. And that was like, for all the reasons you're saying very poignant to me, it was also quite poignant to me that both of them really collaborated with their kids on writing them. And it was just sort of joint um, endeavor and that like, you know, that like the idea for the cave of time, the kind of like OG book of the series had actually come from Ed Packard's daughter who had been like spelunking at camp. And she was like, well, what about a time traveling cave? Because she was thinking back to this cave that she had been crawling around inside of and thinking, what if I had gone deeper rather than going back? You know, it was all just really, I love that idea of, of being an artistic collaborator with her children. But I think, I mean, it's interesting because actually like when Ed Packard wrote me, a letter he really liked the piece when it came out but he wrote me a letter of course like framed as a choose your own adventure Amazing. where he had a couple of like kind of quibbles with the piece and that he didn't put this in the public letter but one of his quibbles was like he was like you made it sound like i knew a lot more like um after my divorce than I did before it, but I felt just as clueless afterwards than I did before it. I was like I love that like I love not, I, not that I'm wishing anybody a feeling of cluelessness, but I just, I love the honesty of that and the kind of refusal of the, like, you go through something hard and on the other side is wisdom, like in some kind of algorithmic Rube Goldberg machine, like, you know, pop in a silver ball, get an ice cream cone out kind of way. But I do think it's like the do-over is never it's never like a do-over. It's like a do-forward or something like that. Like, you don't get to do the thing you already did a different way, but like 
you do not always, always get to, but kind of always have to do the next thing, you know, I mean, unless your life is done, which it is for all of us at some point, but like that idea of like, yeah, you don't get to be done. And also you don't have to be done, you know, and, and that sort of the, how you kind of take what's happened before and like translate it into some new way of being was ultimately like what was pretty interesting to me about, um, kind of looking at the form of those books as a, what does the form of these books have to tell us about what it feels like to be alive? Leslie, you're, <laughs> you're God, fucking... it always feels like this could be like, just right. Like the first hour and a half and then I know, of, I the, know. of, of the road trip. Um, but, um, to be continued as always. I know what a pleasure. Um, Thank you so much for, for taking time to do this. The, I know you're incredibly busy and the, uh, I, I have to go and like write copious notes now of like all the shit that we need to address the next time we talk. Um, well, I can't wait. And it was so fun. Um, so fun to talk as always. And, uh, till the next time. All right. Take care. Yeah. You too. Bye. Folks. Thank you so much for listening. I know there's, uh, a million podcasts out there we appreciate you uh you spending your time with us the um if you're digging the show if you're enjoying it if you if these conversations uh move you make you laugh annoy you piss you off um please take a minute to uh to rate review and subscribe on apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcast uh it helps us grow the show and it helps other people find it um if you'd like to hear bonus episodes song demos just sort of uh, ranting off the cuff uh, conversations all sorts of different uh, bonus material writing advice uh, personal blog posts and stuff like that uh, go to patreon.com slash mishka shabali uh, we will be having monthly episodes up there with my mom and i answering uh, questions from readers and there's all kinds of good stuff there uh, thank you so much for supporting